So today, unfortunately, Drew and Becky could not be with us. Um, if you haven't heard, Drew's mother passed away sadly earlier this week, and so they have gone back to be with their family and um, to manage the the uh, the uh, proceedings for the week. So I'm sure they would appreciate your prayers. Um, but what we're going to do this morning is delve further into the topic of being in Christ that Drew introduced last week. And before we're able to see, I think, the, the radical nature of the scriptures that we've just read, um, we need to look first at the problem of our being. And so we're going to watch a, a short video to just introduce that for us. So, Dave, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Well, I'm a, an executive assistant at a major pet products company. Dave, I don't want you to tell us what you do. I want you to tell us who you are. Oh, all right. Um, I'm a pretty good guy. I, um, I like playing tennis on occasion. Um, also, not your hobbies, Dave. Just simple. Tell us who you are. I just... Maybe you could give me an example of what a good answer would be. Um, what did you say? <laughs> you want Lou to tell you who you are. <laughs> no, I just... Uh, I'm a nice, easygoing man. I might be a little bit indecisive at times. Um, Dave, you're describing your personality. I want to know who you are. I don't know what you want me to say. I mean, I'm sorry, I just, I want to answer your question. Just not, not doing it right, I, I guess. I think we're getting a picture, Dave. Let's move on. The question, who are you, is such a fundamental question to our lives. And yet, it's such a hard question to give an easy answer to. We know that who we are doesn't boil down to what we do or where we're from or what our job is or our family or uh, what our community is. We're somehow more than just the sum of those parts. And yet I challenge you to give an answer to who are you without making reference to any of those externals. Those externals are the only way that we are able to reveal who we are to other people. And we can only reveal who we are in relation to other things because the reality is we're dependent on other things for our existence and our identity. Our being doesn't exist in and of itself. On the other hand, when Moses had an encounter with God and he said, who are you? God replied, I am that I am. Which sounds like one of the most uh, non-answers in all of history but it's actually because God is the root of existence himself. Genesis records that the basic essence of what it means to be human is to reflect God's person, that he made us as beings in his image. He created us to be a reflection of himself, something that he would look on with joy as the pinnacle of his creation. That was our identity. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out the great lie that Satan got over Adam 
was that there was something lacking in his identity, that he still needed to do something in order to become the image of God, to reflect who God was. And he needed to do that through his own action and decision. And that was the moment where Adam rejected God's gift of grace and chose his own will as the thing that would essentially identify him. And so history is the tale of humanity attempting to become like God through our own will and decisions. But now in rejecting God, all those that have followed in, in, in Adam's family line, all of Adam's descendants, they're no longer identified in God, but they're identified in themselves. And what we found out over time is as soon as you reject God, if there's nothing external to life's ever-changing circumstances, then identity becomes changing with the seasons. And ultimately, it becomes something meaningless. All we're left with is the despair of trying to vainly define who we are in the course of our short lives, knowing in the back of our minds that if this is all there is, in the end, it's all going to be pointless and wiped out. And so it isn't just that we don't know who we are. Deep down, we're also ashamed of who we are because we know that somehow we're falling short of what we should be. Oliver Sacks, who was a well-known British um, atheist, neurologist, uh, he wrote a book called Awakenings. It was made into a film with Robert De Niro a long time ago. And he said this, all of us have a basic intuitive feeling that once we were whole and well, at ease, at peace, at home in the world, totally united to the grounds of our being, and that then we lost this primal, happy, innocent state and fell into our present sickness and suffering. We had something of infinite beauty and preciousness, and we lost it. We spend our lives searching for what we've lost, and one day, perhaps, we will suddenly find it. What he's talking about is this desire for home that's in the human heart, this desire for our place of belonging, reconciliation with our design and our designer, but we don't know how to get there. And it reminds me of, of Thomas's question to Jesus in John 14. Uh, Thomas says to Jesus, um, Jesus had been talking about preparing a place for his disciples in his father's house, the father's house being that place of peace and rest and reconciliation. But Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And that's the question that rings out in the human heart. How can we know the way home? And so this is where all the world religions and philosophies of life come into play as ways to try and answer that basic question. How can we become the kind of people that we once were, that we now should be? And it's interesting, first of all, that everybody does agree that there is actually something wrong with us, that we need to become something. But what differs is how they tell us from get, uh, how to get from here to there. And I want to share a few insights that, um, that are... Uh, from a, a former tutor of mine, Michael Ramsden. Um, but you can also find it in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's writings and C.S. Lewis and others. And it's this. 
When you look at the religions and philosophies of the world, you see that in response to that question, they offer three basic solutions to the problem of our being. And these three solutions are rooted in your thinking, your feeling, or your doing. Some will say, well, the problem is, the problem is rooted in the way you think. You're thinking wrong about life. What you need to do is master this system of thought, come to grips with these ideas, understand this philosophy, and when you do, then you'll have the keys to understanding life, the universe, and everything else. In other words, it reduces the question to your mind. The solution is a system of thinking that you need to understand. Fix your thinking. Others will say what you need to do is reach out with your feelings. Try and achieve an experience, an experience in life that will somehow mystically make sense of life. And so this reduces the question to our feelings. The solution is a spiritual experience to be attained. Fix your feelings. And that's why there's millions of people today who go on treks to India and Peru and many other places in the world so that they can find a certain guru, smoke a certain local drug, and have a spiritual experience that will awaken them to the true reality of life, the universe, and everything else. Others say... No, the problem's in what you're doing. The problem is your actions. Uh, others say the problem is rooted in, um, in your doing. Here's a set of principles to guide your actions, your way of life. And as you follow these principles, you'll eventually become the kind of person uh, that is worthy. You'll become the kind of person that you should have always been. It reduces the, the, the problem to your actions. Fix your doing. And no matter where you look, all the religions and philosophies of the world reduce the the problem to one of these three things or a mix of them. Think this, experience this, or do this, and one day you'll become the kind of person that will be able to find home. The Christian faith is not rooted in any of those three or even a mix of those three. You can't become a Christian simply by mastering a set of beliefs, even if they're the correct beliefs. You can't become a Christian simply by having a certain experience or feeling a certain way. You can't become a Christian simply by following a set of rules for life. It's nothing less than those things. It's something more. In fact, it can be claimed that all Christian heresy through history has been been rooted in trying to reduce the gospel to one of those three things. The Christian faith isn't rooted in thinking, even though there's nothing more profound than knowing Christ. It's not rooted in feeling or in experience, even though there's nothing more life-changing than meeting Christ. It's not rooted in doing, even though Jesus says his followers are to be known for the lives that they lead. The Christian faith is rooted in being. When Jesus came into the world, he didn't come to simply give us new information about God 
or a new experience of God or, or just to tell us how to live for God. He came in the world to be God. Jesus isn't just a prophet giving us a new way to live or a teacher that brings new truths about God or a guru that uh, gives us a different experience of life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, Jesus brought all these questions down to himself. If you want to know what God thinks, how God feels, and the kinds of things that God does, Look at me, he says. That is what makes Christianity radically different from any other world religion or philosophy. In fact, it shows us that the gospel isn't really a religion or philosophy at all. It's primarily a piece of news. It's a piece of news about this person, Jesus. The good news isn't just about Jesus. The good news is Jesus. With all other world religions, you could remove the founder and the system would still stand. You could replace the Buddha in Buddhism or send another prophet in the place of Muhammad in Islam or send Aaron instead of Moses in Judaism and the systems that they brought would still stand because what was important was the message, not necessarily the messenger. But if you remove Jesus from Christianity, there's nothing left. Just some drafty buildings, some wordy creeds, and some boring people. (laughs) You've taken all the power away. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, in other words, if he's still dead, if he's not alive right now, you're still dead in your sins. Your faith is futile. Paul says, the good news is in Jesus. You can't take the Christ out of Christian. If you take the Christ out of Christian, all you're left is the letters I-A-N. And Ian can't help you. (laughs) Jesus says, this is all about me. That's why I told the Pharisees in John 5, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that in them you'll find eternal life and all the while you refuse to come to me that I may give you life. Jesus didn't just bring the word of God. He is the word of God in the flesh. And that in itself is absolutely unique. No other uh, great religious founder even claimed to be God. Only Jesus So, Jesus is the full revelation of the Father. It's rooted in his being. But Christianity is also rooted in being in terms of our salvation. It's not through Jesus' teachings or uh, just an experience or feeling or or by imitating his way of life that we can be saved. It's through Jesus' physical death and bodily resurrection that we can be saved. Paul says in the passage that we read that when Jesus went to the cross, he became sin for us. That's a really strong statement. Jesus became a curse for us. In other words, when Jesus went to the cross, he took all of the bad things we ever thought, 
all of the horrible experiences that we've gone through, all the wrong things that we have ever done, he took them into himself and became a curse for us on the cross. And because he died, and because he rose again, and he's alive today, that is why we can be saved. That's why it's called a living hope that we have in 1 Peter. Jesus wins our salvation through his being. But Christianity is rooted in being also at the level of our transformation. Jesus said in John 3 that when someone enters the kingdom of heaven, it's not just that they understand the list of beliefs or that they feel a certain way or have an experience or that they even begin to live a certain way. Jesus says coming into the kingdom is being born again. That person becomes completely new. Paul says uh, the, the, that verse in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, um, one of the most precious statements in the whole Bible, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. There's so many people around the world today trying to become a new person from within by uh, trying to change who they are by a lot of learning or by detaching themselves for learning and focusing on uh, their feelings or by working hard in some good cause. And all those things can give us a great sense of purpose in life, but none of them can change the essence of who we actually are. We don't just need an inner awakening. We need a change of who we are. Because the problem is we don't just think sinfully or feel sinfully or act sinfully. The Bible says we are sinners. It's at the essence of the human condition. That's why Jesus said we need to be born again. And that phrase can also be translated born from above. Not awakened from within, but born from above. Every other religion tells you that through, uh, through hard work, determination, and perseverance through the course of your life and changing your thinking, your feeling, and your actions, one day you can reconcile yourself to God. The gospel is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it goes on to say, because God has reconciled us to himself. Jesus starts at the point everyone else wants to finish. He begins where everyone else wants to end up. He makes you a new person now when you come to him. And then he works the reality of who you now are into the rest of your life. Salvation isn't, I've mastered these ideas, or I've had all these great experiences, or look, God, at all the great things I'm doing for you. Salvation is when Jesus Christ invades our being with his being, and we become a new person. We share his nature. Formerly, we were objects of wrath, but now we become children of God. We become adopted into his family. He changes. We, we become part of his family line. 
And so bit by bit, we begin to take on the family resemblance as we grow up into who we are. It's almost like a change on our birth certificate, which goes from saying son of Adam to son of God. A Christian now exists in Christ rather than existing just in Adam. And just like when we were born the first time, we needed to grow up to learn to think, act, and feel maturely. Same thing goes for when you're born the second time. You need to grow up to learn to think, feel, and act maturely in who you are in Christ. You don't pop out of the womb a fully formed, mature adult. (laughs) The pages of the New Testament are full of this incredible truth. See what a great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called sons of God. All of the world religions say, if you want to make your way to God, here's a way for you one day of becoming worthy of the person you're meant to be. But that's something you can never be sure of because it's based on your performance. How can you ever be sure that you've done enough? Jesus offers to make anyone that comes to him worthy now. And it's something you can be absolutely sure of because it's not based on you, it's based on him. That's why Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. Because we're dead in our sins, the Bible says. We're powerless to change who we are. Because our identity comes from outside ourself. But in Jesus, we're given a new being. Let me tell you a a little story just to help illustrate this. Take the example of an orphan girl who wants nothing more than to become a princess. She's absolutely determined to become a princess. And so, first of all, she, you know, she sets out to do this, and first of all, she gets all the books about princesses and royal families that she can scrounge up. She learns everything that there is to know about all the princesses in the world. She even gets an opportunity one day to go and take a degree in princess studies, and she becomes a recognized expert She does TV interviews. She gives lectures. She writes best-selling books all about princesses. And yet she wakes up every morning, and she's still the same orphan girl. So she says, okay, um, I don't just need to know about princesses. I I need to realize my inner princess. I need to feel it in my heart. And so... I need to go to the most magical palace I can find and meditate on my own princessness. And maybe I'll find a princess drug that'll get me uh, to, to really experience what it's like to be a princess. And that will be my mystical princess experience. And yet, she does all these things and still wakes up every day the same orphan girl. So she says, okay, it's no good knowing about princesses and feeling like one if I don't act like one, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put all that knowledge and passion to work and I'm going to sip my tea correctly and I'm going to wave like a princess should and I'm going to dress in all the right uh, dresses and I'm going to follow all the right royal etiquette. And so she puts every ounce of her strength into acting like a princess would act. 
that every time she looks in the mirror, she still sees the same orphan girl. Until one day, a decision is made in the palace that it's time for the prince to get married. And the prince goes out into the, the, uh, into the people and goes through a tremendous ordeal and trial and suffering to choose his bride. And he chooses the orphan girl. And on the day of their wedding, when they come together and they make their vows to one another and they're pronounced man and wife, that same orphan girl who was completely powerless to change herself into a princess, in that moment, she is instantly a princess. It is now who she is. With all the privileges, all the honor, all the inheritance of a member of the royal family. The prince's glory becomes her glory. She's welcomed into the palace. And that might seem like a sweet little fairy story, but you know what? The three major metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about what it means to become a Christian are marriage, we are the bride of Christ if we're in Christ, adoption. Paul says we're given the spirit of adoption that we cry out to God, Abba, Father, and new birth. The only three ways that I can think of to become part of a family. When Jesus enters into covenant with us, the Father adopts us into his family and we become children of God, born from above. You know, a lot of times when people are asked, are you a Christian? They'll say, oh, I think so, or um, I'm trying to be. Um, (laughs) Just like that orphan girl, you can be sure that you're a Christian if you've welcomed Christ into your life and he's come into your life and changed you, it's now who you are. And it's very important for us to know who we are in Christ because most Christians judge who they are in terms of their thinking, their feeling, and their doing. And when people are thrown off their faith, it's because their identity is rooted in one of those three things. If your identity is rooted in one of those three things, whenever those things are questioned, you'll be in an identity crisis. The moment something doesn't make sense, the thought is, well, I'm having trouble getting my head around this. I wonder if I'm really a Christian. Or maybe you wake up, you don't wake up every morning with this bubbling feeling of just dying to uh, spend time with God. And so you think, well, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Or maybe you have a moral failure or you see some other Christian go through a moral failure and you think, I'm not good enough for this. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. But the princess's identity doesn't cease to exist when she struggles to understand all the truths about her new identity. It doesn't cease to exist when she wakes up and she's been arguing with her husband and she's unhappy. It doesn't cease to exist when she breaks a rule of royal etiquette. She is a princess. And we, when we are in Christ... We are a new being, and nothing can take away that bond that we have with him. Christianity is not a state of mind. It is a state of being, a state of existence, belonging 
to him. And so this leads us to our last point. The church is the group of people that belong to Jesus and are no longer in the image of Adam, but are now in the image of Christ. It says in Romans 8.29 that we have been predestined to be conformed to his image. That is the end goal of the human life, that who we are would be so matured in us that we would begin to look more and more like Jesus. That's why Paul says in verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Someone once said there's five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. Most people never bother reading the first four. Paul says earlier in this letter, actually, that we are living letters of Christ. How does your life read? How does my life read? Is Jesus on every page? Is he in the occasional chapter? The reason that we step into the light and become children of light is to be transformed so that people can see our lives and conclude God did it. Our lives make an appeal to people to reconcile to God. And so Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors embody the authority of the person that they represent, but they also speak on that person's behalf. And so if you're a Christian here and you know that you should be sharing the gospel, ask yourself, what do people hear when we share the gospel? What is it that they hear us asking them to accept? I know plenty of people who've abandoned their faith because they came across very intelligent people that didn't believe the same things that they did. Or because they found out that atheists or non-believers aren't always as miserable as they're supposed to be. Or because of the bad things that Christians have done through history or or in their own lives. And You know, all of those things, they're enough to make a Christian nervous about propagating Christianity. What is it that I'm really offering people? Do I really believe that that they need this? Here's the wonderful thing. What is the reason that we have hope? Is it because we have hope? a better philosophy than anyone else or a better morality than anyone else or a more practical lifestyle than anyone else. When we ask someone to accept the gospel, we're not asking them to accept our way of thinking or our experience or even our way of life. We're asking them to accept Jesus. Thank God that it's Jesus that makes Christianity unique, not us. Because 99% of the time, my life is not that extraordinary. (laughs) If I'm offering only the gift of myself, well, I'm not sure people need that, and probably, probably they could do without it. But they do need Jesus. 
He is the good news. He's what makes it unique. And so that frees you to share the gospel compellingly because Jesus is beautiful. My understanding is foggy. His is absolutely penetrating into every area of life. My feelings are flaky. His love is absolutely steadfast. My actions are uh, not always reliable. Jesus lived a perfect life. And so the way that you become a Christian is through Christ. You accept him. You become part of him, and he transforms you. You become a new person with a new nature in him. And so I want to end with some tough questions. This is... um, this is a, a, a profound topic, I think. It's a, it's a challenging topic. It's a beautiful topic. Um, but there's some questions that we all need to ask ourselves in light of being in Christ. Who are you? Are you his? Do you know that you're in Christ? Is this a philosophy or something that makes you feel good or just something that you do? Or do you know him? If you do know him, what has your discipleship looked like so far? Have you neglected some areas um, in, in which you need to live out more fully who you are in Jesus? How can your thinking, uh, your feeling, and your doing reflect more that you fully belong to Jesus? When you talk about Christianity, when you present the gospel, what do people hear you say? Who's this really about? When people reject it, are they just rejecting your ideas, your experiences, or what you do? Or have they seen Jesus and they're saying no to him? And so we're going to draw to a close now and we're going to go back into a time of, of, of worship together. But um, these are important questions to, to, to think about. And if you're here and you know, as you confront that, that you don't know Jesus and you want to know Jesus, we have a section for prayer on the side here and you can come and we will pray with you and, uh, and there's no time to waste with that. And if you're here now and you do know Jesus, let's thank him together today that he has offered us his self. Allow yourself to be grounded and rooted only in him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are God among us, Emmanuel. Thank you that because you died and you rose again, that we can share in your resurrection life. Thank you, Lord, that when you give us that life, you create a new person within us. We are transformed. Thank you, Lord, that we today are being formed more and more into your image, and we are your ambassadors in the world. Holy Spirit, thank you that 
It's through you testifying in our hearts that we can know that we are children of God. And so, Lord, would you speak to us now? Help us confront those those tough questions, Lord, that in every area of our lives, that we would be in Christ, coming to reflect him more and more, and that as we present your gospel, that Jesus would be the gift that's being offered. Jesus, we pray in your name and we thank you.